Has someone broken their commitment to you? Maybe they made a commitment and they broke it. Don't show your hands, but chances are someone has broken their promise to you. Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you are listening to the second message in a four-part series on the book of Malachi. Today's message is called Broken Covenants. I hope you enjoy it. God bless you. We are in Malachi chapter 2, and last week we looked at Malachi, the overview, that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And it ends with the pronouncement of a curse. And then 400 years of silence ensue after Malachi's final words, and they're left kind of like a mic drop for the backslidden nation of Israel. And then suddenly, 400 years later, a voice of one crying in the wilderness begins to prepare the way of the Lord, just as Malachi prophesied. The coming Messiah whom John the baptizer describes, would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'd be the one that would be mightier, remember, than John, whose sandals he wasn't even worthy to loosen uh, or to carry. John described Jesus as the Lamb of God who he takes away the sin of the world. Of course, John was describing the Lamb, the sacrificial offering that would be slain and offered for sin. And in this case, Jesus would be God's lamb that would take away the world's sin. So who were the men who received the lambs in the temple? Those were the priests. The priests were the, I guess you could say, the mediator, as we just sang, the go-between, if you would, uh, between God and man. The priest would uh, inspect the sacrifice, receive the sacrifice, and offer the sacrifice. He was God's representative, and therefore he was set apart of the tribe of Levi. But what happens when the priests themselves become corrupt? What happens when people bring shoddy offerings and the priests don't turn them away but all too willingly receive them? What happens when the leader begins leading but he's leading people astray? This is what Malachi addresses in this second chapter of his prophetic message. Now, if you're listening this morning, hopefully you are, it doesn't take much of a cynic to look at spiritual leaders and say, hmm, some of them aren't really spiritually leading, right? The priests of Malachi's day had made a commitment previously to God and man to stand upright and holy and, and to take this office seriously, and now they had broken their commitments. Does that happen to you? Has someone broken their commitment to you? Maybe they made a commitment and they broke it. Don't show your hands, but chances are someone has broken their promise to you. Maybe it was your employer, and they promised that in the next few weeks or months or years, you're going to be getting that position, that promotion. And now over time, you realize, hey, they never kept their promise. Maybe growing up, your parents promised something that they said, you're going to have this, and they failed to keep your promise. That was the first time maybe growing up, you realized people aren't steadfast. They don't keep their word. Maybe on a heavier note this morning, your husband or your wife broke their covenant that they made between God and you and began to pursue someone outside of the sanctity of your marriage relationship. And here you are with a broken marriage, a broken promise. People do break their promises, and it can be a source of incredible discouragement and disillusionment and disappointment. And it can cause us this morning to come to church and be, well, 
a little cynical, and a little untrusting. There was a wife who told her husband, you don't appreciate me. Husbands, you ever get that one? You don't appreciate me. And he said, honey, I promise you, for the rest of the day, I'm gonna treat you royally. She said, do you promise? And he said, I promise, I'm gonna treat you royally. She said, why is he emphasizing royally? He said, let's go to lunch, babe. I'm gonna take you to a nice place. He goes, okay. He brings her to Burger King. <laughs> I'm gonna treat you royally, honey. She goes, that's not nice. At least take me to dessert. He goes, I got just the place. He drove her to Dairy Queen. <sighs> so at least he kept his promise, right? What happens when people break their promises? They let us down. But what happens when a spiritual leader lets you down? Have you ever been let down by a pastor? They step on some toes. Someone said to me last week, you're stepping on toes, pastor, and I like it. I was like, all right, good. We'll keep it up this week. Have you been let down by a pastor? In a recent Gallup poll, people were asked, which professions do you trust the most? And which do you trust the least? And pastor made the list. Woo, praise God. Pastor made the list. People trust pastors. But they trust nurses, doctors, physicians, uh, and pediatricians, uh, and pharmacists and military personnel, even teachers higher than they trust their pastor. At least pastor ranked higher than members of Congress, though. I'm happy about that one. Do you trust pastors? Has a pastor given you a reason to not trust other spiritual leaders? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if you said, yeah, I've been let down by a pastor. If you read the news, even a cursory reading of the news, uh, you find, man, people are letting us down spiritually. The Episcopal Church has voted to install practicing homosexual bishops, and they continue that practice today. Roman Catholic Church is in the news frequently because of the cover-up of priests who've molested children. Back in 1988, 30 years ago, Leadership Magazine asked pastors um, this question. Since you've been in local church ministry, have you ever done anything with someone, not your spouse, that you feel was sexually inappropriate? Did you know one in four answered yes. One in four, and that was 30 years ago. No doubt there may be some of you this morning uh, here or listening, and sadly, you were a member of a church where the pastor fell, where the leadership were not worth following, maybe where sin was present or apathy or spiritual stagnation or they're using carnal devices of the flesh that were used to try to gain a larger crowd, but it's not to the glory of God or the good of men's souls. Have you been let down by a spiritual leader? I dare not ask you to raise your hand this morning, but I would venture to say all of us have been let down by someone. And in this case, in Malachi chapter two, Israel was. Last week we saw what happens when an entire nation of people backslides, but today we learn why they backslid. It was because of broken promises, broken covenants. In the case of Israel, they had corrupt leaders. The people had brought blemish sacrifices, which is condemnable in and of itself. But the, the greater sin was that the priests called to be spiritual leaders were receiving the blemished offerings. See, the people began breaking their marriage covenants to pursue sinful relationships. But the leaders had broken their covenant with God long before that. And so this morning, we're going to look, if you're taking note, at three broken covenants in Malachi chapter 2. We'll put them on the screen for you. If you're taking note, I hope you are. The broken, first of all, covenant of Levi, verses one through nine. And John did a great job reading through those, so we'll skim through the verses, but we're gonna look at the broken covenant of Levi. Secondly, the broken covenant of Israel, in verses 10, 11, and 12. And then finally, 
we're going there. We're going to talk about the broken covenant of marriage, verses 13 through 17. If this is your first Sunday, we don't teach on divorce normally. We don't teach on giving normally. We don't teach on um, certain things unless the scripture brings them up. We teach verse by verse through the scripture. Today, you find yourself here providentially in a passage where we talk about divorce. And so this is not something that we harp on, that we get on on every high horse and every sermon, but we happen to be in a subject matter where the scriptures talk about it. So we're going to talk about it today. Let's start in verse 1 and uh, notice who God, who the prophet Malachi, is directly addressing. He says in verse 1, and now, O priest, this commandment is for you. This commandment is for you. Uh, circle the word priest so you know who he's writing to. This is for the priest. They're the spiritual representatives of the church, or of the people, rather. Now, they needed, the priest needed to pay attention. And they needed, uh, Malachi says, to hear this and to take it to heart. It's a very solemn responsibility to be a leader uh, spiritually. It's not something that you take lightly. It's a covenant that you make before God, and man, that I'm gonna stand before God and make this covenant, this oath. I'm gonna be someone who represents God to the people and the people to God. Today, we don't like using the word covenant or, uh, or commitment, okay? But when we use the word covenant, it's different than contract, very different, okay? We'll learn why a little bit later. And sadly, today, covenant commitment sounds more like a punchline than a lifeline. Uh, William Coleman says this, I like this, commitment is not a cage, it's a safety net, right? I, I'm a spiritual leader who's made a commitment to God and to you, and that's not a cage to me, it's a safety net. If you're in a relationship, I think someone proposed recently in our church. So there's some newlyweds coming uh, that are here today and that soon will be, right? A lot of newlywed married folks here. And so that commitment you've made to one another is not a cage, it's a safety net. Uh, but see, the leaders here had looked at it as kind of, hey, I'm able to do whatever I want without consequence. I can just kind of cast off any responsibility. But see, responsibility, leadership, Spiritually is a heavy responsibility. James, the half-brother of Jesus, reminds us in James chapter three, verse one, he says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That always scared me. What does that mean? Greater strictness. Well, uh, James, I believe, is saying you're not only gonna be judged by what you do, but by what you teach. Ouch. A person should not seek to be a spiritual leader unless they're prepared to preach what they practice and practice what they preach. John Owen said it best when he said, no man preaches his sermon well to others if he doth not first preach it to his own heart. My wife and I will often say, like in the middle of a fight Saturday night, what, she'll say, what are you teaching tomorrow? And I'll be like, uh, reconciliation and relationships, you know? And she's like, I knew it. That's why we're going through this right now. Or we have that tough financial week. She's like, what are you teaching on this Sunday? I'm like, huh, financial stewardship. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. And so we have to live this out. We've got to preach it to ourselves. John Calvin said, it would be better for the preacher to break his neck going into the pulpit if he does not take pains to be the first to follow God. Why did I quote that today? Oh, boy. Notice verse 2. If they won't hear, they won't take it to heart, they won't give God glory, there will be consequences. In this case, God is declaring a curse, a curse upon their blessings. In fact, if you look at it, he's already cursed their blessings because they're not taking his word to heart. Now, no, notice how this curse fleshes out in three very practical ways, starting in verse three. If you're taking note, 
These are three things that happen when a leader falls, when a leader fails, okay, when a leader has a public sinful fall. Notice, first of all, when a leader falls, the followers fall out. Notice verse three, he says, behold, I will rebuke your descendants. I'll, I'll rebuke your descendants. God promises that the followers will have fallout. Those who fail to represent God will be cursed in their following. And we've seen it all too often, right? You, you hear that church, maybe celebrity pastor, the leader falls, the shepherd struck, and the sheep scatter. And, and by the way, that's a, a reason why I'm a big proponent against celebrity pastors. I wrote a blog a few years ago titled, Three Reasons Why We Don't Need Celebrity Pastors. And uh, here's something I pointed out on my website, pilgrimbenham.com. Go check it out, right? That's kind of ironic. Talking about don't be a celebrity pastor, follow me on my website. When a pastor falls, subscribe today. When a pastor falls, there's always fallout. There are hurting people. There are shattered lives. There are detractors who scoff from afar and look with derision on our faith and message with increasing frequency. It's frustrating to see, but it happens. God promises to rebuke the followers. Secondly, notice the second half of verse 3. This is, this is heavy. When John read it earlier, he's reading from the New King James, and we are as well. If you this morning had a King James version, the word refuse would be a different word. And I want to explain the word to you. He says this, I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feast, and one will take you away with it. Mm, all right. Well, if you're taking note, the second thing that happens when a leader falls is that fame is replaced with shame. Notice God promises he'll spread refuse on the face of the priest. Pretty graphic. The word refuse here isn't as strong as the original Hebrew. The word that some Bible translations use, including the King James, is the word dung. I will spread dung on your faces. Now, even that isn't entirely accurate. A better word is awful, and awful it was. <laughs> Let me define awful for a moment. We'll put it on the screen. It's not spelled the way you're thinking. It's a noun. It means the entrails and internal organs of an animal. Am I on? Did I lose me? Uh, used as food refuse or waste material. It's also known as decomposing animal flesh. Now, this is very interesting. When you brought an animal sacrifice, it would still have excrement in its system. Sorry for the graphic use, but it's there. And so God explains in Exodus 29, 14, you're to take that and burn it outside of the sanctuary. And God is saying here, hey, you're bringing your sacrifices. Guess what? I'm gonna take that out of the offering and I'm gonna, I'm gonna smear that excrement from the sacrifice on your face. Just think of the stench, the humiliation. That would be worn on the leaders so that all would see and be warned. What a graphic picture. I'm gonna take what you're offering, I'm gonna take the grossest part of that and smear it on your face so you're humiliated in front of everyone. How many times do we see a pastor fall and their fame is replaced with this kind of shame? The world looks on and all they see is excrement smeared on the faces of men who purported to represent our God. It's a pitiful sight to behold. But look at verse three, the third thing that happens. He says, and one will take you away with it. One will take you away with the excrement. The third thing that happens is that their spiritual authority, it's revoked. They're taken outside of the sanctuary. They were deemed unclean. You know, when a pastor falls, it's inappropriate, I believe, to restore that pastor uh, to that position of authority when he fell. Uh, it's a, a kind of personal belief that I have when I read the scripture. He can be restored to the Lord, and he should be, but when you're in a public 
a position like that, uh, God can still use you, but I don't believe it should be to the same capacity or effectiveness because of the shame, because of uh, the scoffing that goes with it. Now, why would God do this to the priest? Look at verse 4. Here's why he did it. Verse 4, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. The purpose of this discipline, listen, was to teach the leaders that God wanted to keep his covenant with Levi, the tribe that represented the priesthood. If you're taking note, jot this down. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. The Lord makes a covenant of peace with Phineas because he was bold enough to stand up for God's honor. And God promises a lasting priesthood from this man because he stood up and he did something that was bold, it was outlandish, it was audacious, and it was righteous. He says, I'm going to keep my covenant with Levi. Look at verse 5. He says, my covenant was with them. It was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him so that he might fear me. So he feared me and he was reverent before my name. He feared me. The law of truth, verse 6, was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. And verse 7 tells us what a priest should be like. It says, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, if you're still taking note, there are five things that we learn from this section of Scripture, uh, verses 5 through 7, that tell us what a priest should be, what a spiritual leader should be. And so I want you to jot these down really quickly. These attributes, I believe, are also a remedy against falling, in case there's a pastor listening to this and is nearing a sinful cliff in his life. Number one, these are five attributes of a, good, of a good spiritual leader. Number one, verse five, he says he fears God and he's reverent, right? He's reverent. A spiritual leader who doesn't revere God is one word, they're dangerous. But good leaders are reverent. They don't wanna offend God. They know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They realize and acknowledge that, hey, my position is not infallible and I'm like grass that withers and fades but God and his word are eternal. So there's a fear. There's a holy reverence and awe of God. Secondly, a good spiritual leader will know and obey the word. Notice verse six, it says, the law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. Now, true spiritual leaders are those who know God's word and they obey it. They don't just preach well, they live well. Now, John Huss, the Bohemian reformer, um, died at the stake for uh, the belief in the authority of the scripture. On his 42nd birthday, he was burned at the stake and uh, instead of renouncing his faith, Huss's last words were, what I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. And that should be the decree of every pastor. Whatever I taught with my lips, I'm sealing with my blood. I'm gonna live it out. I'm not just talking about it, I'm living it and obeying it. And that brings us to the third thing. A good spiritual leader should have godly character. Notice Malachi says in verse six, he walked with me in peace and equity. A good spiritual leader is following God even when no one else is watching. Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, said, is that man likely to do much good or fit to be a minister of Christ that will speak for him an hour and by his life will preach against him all the week beside? We have to be spiritual leaders of integrity. Levi, Malachi says, has, has no behavior that results in entrails being smeared on his face. Uh, there were no secrets, no skeletons, no guilty conscience when he laid his head to sleep at night. What a wonderful place to be having godly character that brings no shame. Uh, the fourth thing that we should look for in a good spiritual leader is that they turn away 
people from sin, verse six. They turn away people from sin. These spiritual leaders were leading people to sin. Has that ever happened to you? You've been following a man and he led you into some doctrinal error that led you to sin, that led you into compromise? Maybe there's a woman here who was married to someone, you were submitting to him, and he wasn't walking biblically, and he started leading you into sin. What a sad place. I'm sorry if that was your experience. I love what F.B. Meyer says about this. We don't have the quote, but listen to this. F.B. Meyer said, do you want to turn people away from iniquity? Then you must walk with God hourly, constantly, in blessed and intimate fellowship, leaning, I mean, learning from him who you are to approach, what line you are to follow. Plead this promise, Lord, let me be used in turning many away from iniquity. And notice that the most blessed result will accrue much less from what you say than from what you are. It was Levi's walk with God more even than his words that produced this wholesale reformation, turning people away from sin. That's what pastors are called to do. And most of the time that comes through the preaching of the word of God expositionally. And number five, a good spiritual leader will teach people the word, verse seven, points out that the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should come and seek the law from his mouth, okay? You should come this uh, every Sunday morning looking to receive from the lips of whoever's here teaching a good instruction. I'm coming to seek the scriptures, not movie clips, right? Not pithy statements. I looked it up in the Hebrew. I was trying to find it. He should keep knowledge. The people should seek the law. I didn't find movie clips there in the Hebrew. I was looking for it. I tried to find it, Right? We must be men of the book. Malachi says he is a messenger of the Lord. Let me ask you, don't answer this, but think about it. Do you look at your pastor, me, unless you're visiting today, do you look at your pastor as a messenger of the Lord to you, to your marriage, to your family, to your walk with Jesus? As a spiritual authority in your life who's been tasked to bring a message to you directly from the word of God. That's what we're called to do as leaders. And if you've been under the influence of a spiritual leader who has not been those things, and I say just endearingly, I am sorry for that misrepresentation of a man who was supposed to be a man of God, or maybe it was a woman discipling you who was supposed to be um, that great spiritual leader. That's what we're called to be, and God willing, that's what I will always aspire to be. And I like what A.W. Tozer says. He says this. He says, save me from the curse of compromise, of imitation, of professionalism. Save me from the error of judging a church by its size, its popularity, or the amount of its yearly offering. Help me to remember, Lord, I am a prophet, not a promoter, not a religious manager, but a prophet. Now, notice what happens in verse eight. Verse eight, and we'll get a little bit faster now. He says, but you've departed from the way, leaders. You've caused many to stumble at the law. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi. Therefore, I've made you contemptible and based before all the people because you've not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. That's broken covenant number one between the priests and God. Let's look at the second broken covenant. We'll move faster, verses 10 through 12. He says, have we not all one father? Why uh, has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenants of the fathers? This is a question they're asking each other. How? How did the nation of Israel profane their covenant with God? Well, he answers in verses 11 and 12. Look at it. He says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, which kind of in the Hebrew covers everyone, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now, what's happening here? The Lord had commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with other heathen nations, okay? If you're taking note this morning, that's not about race. That's not a race thing. That's a faith thing, okay? There's a, if you don't believe me, there's a Moabitess in the genealogy of Jesus. Her name is Ruth. We studied her book last year. Uh, but she was included because she forsook Moab's gods uh, for the Lord. So the people looked at this idea of don't intermarry with other races. And they're like, wait, we want to intermarry the heathen people. That's kind of a dumb commandment. That's not an important one. Yet notice God's indictment in verse 11. He says it's an abomination. It's profanity. He calls it treason. By the way, that's what breaking God's law is. It's high treason. It's lawlessness. I was talking to my daughter, London, this week, and I gave, she gave me permission to share this story with you. But I was sitting with her this week, and, and we were just talking. Uh, we do a little game called Would You Rather, right? Would you rather uh, eat pizza or would you rather eat donuts? And I'm like, honey, don't ask daddy silly questions like that. Both, right? And so we were doing this kind of game, and... Um, I said, what would you do? We just got into this topic. I said, what would you do, London, if you were um, tempted by your friends to steal candy at the candy store? What would you do with that peer pressure? What would you do? And um, uh, would you do it? Would you, would you steal some gummy bears? And she paused for a moment. She was thinking about it. And she kind of got this sheepish look on her face. And then she, with resolve, she's like, no way. I would never feel pressure to take a whole handful of gummy bears, Daddy. But I would take one. <laughs> I would take one. <laughs> And I was like, wait, what? You cute little sinner. What are you talking about? I was like, wait, one gummy bear is still stealing, right? Isn't it? And uh, she's like, well, no, it's only one. I was like, oh, okay, now we have some major problems. So I'm like, all right, let's go back to Genesis. So I'm like, all right, so the speed limit's 35, honey. If daddy's going 36, am I breaking the law? And she's, she rolls her eyes. She's like, well, yeah. And so finally, I'm going on and on. I'm like, all right, so let's look at the Hebrew and Deuteronomy. And she's like, okay, dad. And I'm tying it back to Romans, and I'm bringing in the new covenant. She's like, hey, Dad, Dad, Dad. You know what, Dad? I, fine, I'll pay for the gummy bear. I'll pay for the gummy bear, right? See, I wonder if Israel had this idea. One sin, it's trivial in the eyes of the people. It's not a big deal, and yet God says it's treason. I wonder if there's a pet sin in our life that we rationalize, we argue with God about. It's not really a sin, is it? It's just, you're being stressed out about it. What's the big deal? And yet... When we sin, our conscience continues to betray us. James chapter 4, verse 17, puts it succinctly, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it's sin. There's a broken covenant between us and God. And you're the only mediator between that broken covenant is the man, Christ Jesus. You can't fix that brokenness, that sin, through religion. If you're here this morning, you think that by coming to church, by reading the Bible, by doing good works, that will bridge and fix that covenant. It's not going to work. See, there's a third broken covenant, and this is the most obvious and visual covenant we have on earth. It's the covenant of marriage. Look at verse 13. He says, here's the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and crying. So he doesn't regard your offering anymore. He doesn't receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, Why? Right? For what reason? Here's the reason, verse 14, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you've dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But 
Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Now, if you're taking note, I want to point out, first of all, they were covering the altar with their tears, but God's not listening. He's not listening. Why not? The people often say, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Now, I have a few thoughts on this, biblically. Um, first, you could say that God does answer our prayers. He answers them yes, no, or wait. You could say that. Uh, but even more than that, there are some conditions in Scripture which clearly delineate that God does not always answer our prayers. And I don't want to do this this morning because of time, but on Wednesday on Facebook, I'm going to do a Facebook Live and share four reasons that God may not answer our prayers. So if you're a Facebooker, uh, if that's a thing, go tune in on Wednesday for that. Uh, it'll be in the afternoon. Uh, but notice that here, God isn't answering their prayers because, here's why, they've abandoned their wives. They had married them in their youth, but when they got older, the priests were divorcing them to find younger women to replace them. And they had the audacity to just keep on carrying on their worship in the temple as if nothing had ever happened. Marrying the wife of their youth and then later just casting her aside. That's the experience of many women. They'll marry someone in their youth and then as they get older, as they begin to age, the husband loses interest. For that reason, Agatha Christie gave this advice. Hey, women, marry an archaeologist because the older you get, the more interested they'll become in you. <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> Malachi points out in verse 14 that our wives, notice it, maybe circle it, husbands. He says, our wives are our companions. They're our alongside helper. To abandon them, he says, it's on par with treason. They're our wives by covenant. The world would say, hey, love keeps the marriage alive. But no, marriage keeps love alive. See, in verse 15, God reminds them of the oneness of marriage. This morning, if you're married, is there a oneness? It's not just a reality implied, but it should be experienced. Is there a oneness in your marriage? It's already existing uh, based on the garden that God made the two one. But are you experiencing that oneness? See, in Genesis, God created Eve out of Adam, and he brought her to him and instituted this covenant of marriage. This wasn't this idea they dreamed up. Adam's like, hey, what are you doing later? She's like, I don't know. He's like, hey, you want to become one flesh? They didn't just dream this up. God brought them together, right? Marriage isn't just about two consenting adults of any gender who simply love one another. It's a coming together of male and female, becoming one flesh. And the unity and diversity of a marriage, it actually helps paint a picture to the world of the unity and diversity of our Trinitarian God. I love what Tim Keller says on this point. This is fascinating. He says, in Genesis 1, you see pairs of different but complementary things made to work together. Heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity. It's part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, unlike things are made to unite and create dynamic wholes which generate more and more life and beauty through their relationships. As N.T. Wright points out, the creation and uniting of male and female at the end of Genesis 2 is the climax of all of this. And then Keller goes on uh, to say this. Therefore, in one of the great ironies of late modern times, when we celebrate diversity in so many other cultural sectors, we've truncated the ultimate unity in diversity, and that's intergendered marriage, husband and wife. You see, rather than entertaining thoughts of divorce when things go wrong, when aging sets in, when life kind of hits us, we are, he says, instead, to take heed of our spirit. 
We're to take heed to our spirit. But what does God think about divorce? Look at verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Wow. God's assessment of divorce is the same assessment in chapter one of Esau. It's hatred. It's rejection. God's against it. Why? Because of what it produces. It produces destruction, church. Now, in an Israelite marriage, rather than putting a ring on it, right, ring on the finger, you would actually cover the one you wish to marry with a garment. Remember, Boaz did that with Ruth? Covered her? She said, cover me, and he covered her. That was the idea of proposal. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to cover you. And that's the idea here. But notice that in verse 16, you're not covering them with love and tenderness, but with violence. See, God is so passionately against divorce because it mars the picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. If you're taking note, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells the husband and wife that in marriage between them, that's a picture of Christ and his church. The husband lays down his life for the bride, and the bride then honors and submits to her husband. And this is how Christ interacts with the church. Think about it. The Lord will never reject his people. Uh, And the bride, as unfaithful as she is, will never truly replace her bridegroom. So when there's divorce, that mars, that ruins this analogy. And we know the stats, right? The divorce rate currently in the world. Uh, What's the divorce rate? I know you've heard it. What is it? It's 50% or higher, right? 50%. As Christ followers, I've heard the stat is is 50% as well. It's not true. It's a lie. That's a false stat. So be encouraged, right? It's at, I think it's at 2 to 8%. So we're doing better. We're doing better in the world. That's a good thing. But there are some, sadly, believers whose marriages do end in divorce. Maybe you're here today or listening, and you've gone through the pain and the heartache of a divorce. God says you're covering someone with violence. It's heavy. Someone said this, being divorced is like being hit by a Mack truck. If you live through it, you start looking very carefully to the right and to the left. Now, many women can relate to what one woman wrote in a newspaper column. This is what she wrote. She said, I've lost my husband, but I'm not supposed to mourn. I've lost my children. They don't know to whom they belong. I've lost my relatives. They do not approve. I've lost his relatives. They blame me. I've lost my friends. They don't know how to act. I feel I've lost my church. Do they think I've sinned too much? I'm afraid of the future. I'm ashamed of the past. I'm confused about the present. I'm so alone. I feel so lost. God, please stay by me. You are all I have left. Wow. See, God says the tearing apart of a marriage is like an act of violence, and he hates it. Jesus was approached by the Pharisees at one occasion, and they sought to trap him with a question in Matthew chapter 19. And they basically said, in effect, hey, Moses allowed us to get divorces. What do you think? What's your stance on divorce? And Jesus answered them by pointing back to Genesis, back to the original design and purpose of marriage. And he said, well, you know what? Moses allowed there to be a divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but it wasn't originally designed as a covenant that should be broken before death. And Jesus said, anything other than marital unfaithfulness, the word is porneia, it would not necessitate a reason for divorce. Now, I would add one additional thing to that, uh, and I would add to that physical abuse, okay? You need, I would stress the importance of using the proper authorities in that case. But even if there was pornea, there was marital un, unfaithfulness, infidelity, that doesn't mean you must get a divorce. Uh, if you're considering that this morning, a divorce, 
Know what God says about it. This is not something you enter into quickly. Uh, people nowadays seem to use any and every reason with no fault divorce just to, to break it off. Um, read a story this week. This is a true story. Uh, this is not fake news. This is not Babylon B. This is a true news story. There's a 34-year-old Arab man who filed for divorce from his 28-year-old bride a few days after her wedding. The reason? He saw her without makeup on. Okay? This is a true story. He believed that she did not look as pretty as she did before the wedding and accused her of deceiving him by using cosmetics, including fake eyelashes. It all went down as he took her to the beach for a leisurely swim, splashed her face with water, and her makeup began to run off, and he fled the beach in horror <coughs> and then divorced her. Isn't that sad? Isn't that awful? Have you guys seen this place in Bradenton? Have you guys seen that? That's in Bradenton. Yay. Another reason to love Bradenton. <laughs> all right. ASAP divorce. One San Francisco attorney said this, there are two processes that must never be started prematurely, embalming and divorce, all right? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Take a few seconds. Now listen to me very carefully, church. God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. Okay? If you're here and you have a marriage that did sadly end a divorce, there's forgiveness and there's reconciliation that's found at Calvary. See, God is serious about covenant because he always promises to keep his promises. Look at verse 17. He says, yet you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or you say, where is the God of justice? How weary it must have been for God, the one who defines evil, to hear people redefining evil and calling it good. And then to have the audacity to incite God and say, well, where is the God of Israel? Where is God of justice? I don't see him. I can do whatever I want. I never face the consequences. But they fail to understand that judgment delayed is not judgment denied. People of Israel had corrupt priests who were all too willing to break their covenant before God and the people. The people were all too willing to shake off the shackles of the law and do whatever pleased them. And that included their marriage covenant, being willing to forsake the wife of their youth to pursue anyone and everyone. Now in a moment we're gonna close and I wanna invite the band forward. We're gonna sing a song. And as they're coming up, I just wanna say that God is so crazy serious about covenant because he's a covenant-keeping God. In the scriptures, there are over 8,800 promises we sang about it earlier. Faithful you have been and faithful you will be. God is faithful to keep his promises. He doesn't break his end of the agreement. He's forever faithful and committed and steadfast. And we can rest our lives upon his sure words. See, a contract, contract's different than covenant. A contract, you say, hey, we're going to make an agreement. We're going to sign this contract. And all parties are going to keep their end of the deal. And if one of us breaks our end of the contract, the, the whole thing's null and void. See, a covenant's different. A covenant is a love relationship where I say, even if you break your end of the agreement, I'm still gonna be faithful to you. And you know what, church, you and I, we're, we're so faithless, we're so unfaithful. And yet God is faithful even when we break his commands. Spurgeon said this, God's promises are the peculiar treasure of believers. The substance of faith's heritage lies in them. All the promises of our covenant God are ours to have and to hold as our personal possession. By faith, we receive and embrace them and they constitute our true riches. Therefore, trust and be not afraid. 
Whatever else may prove a failure, the promise of God never will. Treasure laid up in this bank is beyond all hazard. Isn't that awesome? We can rest in the promises of God. I want you to close your Bibles. Get settled. My pastor's challenge for us this week, I'm gonna give you a challenge every week. Here's my challenge for you this week. My challenge is for you to dive into the scriptures and unearth the promises that are ours in Christ. Yes and amen. That we would, with our eyes, look to our God who's forever faithful and not look to our own lack of faithfulness as our source of hope. You get discouraged in your own lack of faith, in your own lack of sanctification. I do. I look at my own life, I get discouraged. That's not your source of hope. The promises of God are. So I, I challenge you to write them down, to meditate on them. Maybe pick one and think about it this week. Rest your hope fully on his promises. We're going to sing a song in a moment about building our lives upon his word. It's a sure foundation. Will you this week take that challenge to write down some of the promises of God and then just meditate on them, recite them, think about them, memorize them. Do you know this morning God will keep his promise to you even when others haven't? Maybe you're here this morning and you realize there have been people that have broken their promises to me over and over. Maybe a spiritual leader. In a moment, I want you to raise your hand to acknowledge that so I can pray for you. Maybe you've been hurt by a spiritual leader and you need to trust people and spiritual authority again. You need prayer to not be cynical, but to love and submit to spiritual authority. I want to pray for you about that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been stung particularly by the sin of divorce. You want to be forgiven this morning, but there's shame and there's sorrow and it still clings to you. Do you need prayer? you need grace from Calvary today? Finally, prophetically, there may be a pastor listening to this, and you're on the precipice of a great fall. Will you repent and turn to the Lord and trust Christ again? Will you take heed to your spirit? See, church, if you bow your heads with me and close your eyes, the Lord Jesus himself is the faithful priest. He's the one who kept the law perfectly. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. He alone is worthy. And as we close this morning, I want to pray for you and remind you that men will fail you. But there's one great high priest who will never fail. And he doesn't just offer a sacrifice on your behalf. He became the sacrifice on your behalf that you might be the righteousness of God in heaven. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus. We'll see you next time for our study of Malachi chapter 3.